Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. This is uh, Dr. G with the Axiom Principle. Uh, tonight, I had something special in mind for you. Uh, I wanted to show the pervasiveness of this ideology. Um, last week, or uh, two weeks ago, rather, I discussed the uh, effects that they've had on the community and uh, where it kind of all started. And just to recap a little bit, uh, originally, this all started with the uh, movement from Karl Marx and Frederick Engel uh, called Marxism now, today. Uh, it could also be known as communism, but it's a, essentially a philosophical, philosophical thought that um, there's an in-group and an out-group, essentially, and that the in-group for this group is the working class, the people that uh, toil their lives away, working ends meet um, just to get paid, and then there's the rich. And the rich are the ones that have all the money and all the privilege and all the power, and it's uh, pretty much that that's if I were to make it a loose, uh, I guess, correlation, that, that would be cultural Marxism in a nutshell, or Marxism in a nutshell. Cultural Marxism is a little bit different twist. It's where you take the thoughts and minds of, of culture, um, anything that has to do with something that can be perceived as culture, and then you twist it into a communist behavior where the uh that culture is the victim of another culture and uh typically that that oppressive culture is the one that's keeping everyone down it's also the one that's in power um and that's essentially what cultural marxism is and we can see it alive today in the movements today where the culture of uh, let's say Black Lives Matter, for example, um, the the white people are keeping them down because we're our own culture, I guess. And and in that embodiment of culture, we have full reign and control because we have all the jobs and we have all the power and we have all this, that, and the other. It's no longer just the the rich that control things. It's the it's the uh, it's a a demographic class. It's not monetary power. It's power through the birth of your skin. Um, and that's essentially what I've come to know uh, culture and Marxism to be, if, if I had to put it in a bubble. And so uh, to, to bring it to today's subject, uh, the scientific method in particular has been bastardized by a massive community of communist movements which is uh, the social justice brigade and everything they're in, uh, with the core being feminism. <sighs> to give you an idea, um, Gad said this week, in fact, which is brilliant because it was the same subject I was going to cover today. He put together a three-part series of a of a uh, a uh, Symposium, if you will, is a is a massive group think tank, I guess, 
of uh, gender studies and culture studies. And they basically were discussing all the papers that were released um, and all the, all the data that they've collected and all the studies that they've done. Now, keep in mind that the journals that they're claiming to be published, they're saying these are peer-reviewed journals. So this would be the academic equivalent of the um, any other journal on this planet. That the scientific studies that we have today were all vetted through peer review. Um, in case you're not aware, what peer review is supposed intended to be done is that uh, peer review is when you make a theory, an idea. Um, maybe a tested hypothesis and came out with results that seem to be compelling. You'd submit this to a journal or a publication of some sort. And in that process, what, the, what you would do is they, your peers would be other academics, would go through whatever you published, whatever you wanted to publish, I guess you could say, and they would obliterate it, literally. They would tear it apart. They would dissect anything to see if there was an issue with what you were studying and then um, tell you go back to the drawing board tell you to I don't know tell you to do a bunch of things um, <laughs> I've been through it myself in my own publication in fact anybody that's gone through a doctorate um, has to at least do it once so that you can experience it you don't need to do research the rest of your life but um, essentially you have to do it at least once and the peer review it comes in the form of the uh, oral defense is what it's called. Now, in, in academic circles, this is like the, the gold standard, if you will, of peer review. Um, your peers tear you apart. And if they can't find a hole, then you got something solid here, right? That's the idea behind it anyways. Well, what has happened that I have seen in my own studies in leadership, my own studies in psychology and sociology and so forth, because uh, my particular degree covers philosophy, sociology, and, and uh, psychology, not, not cognitive, not um, clinical, but behavioral as it relates to um, Well, I call it manipulation, but as it relates to, to influence. And uh, I've seen it in my own field, but uh, GADSAD kind of beat me to the punch, unfortunately. Uh, actually, it's not unfortunate because it needed to be covered, and it's absolutely genius what he found. Um, essentially, this conference put together um, supposedly some academics – and some people that um, are the, I don't know, the top um, researchers in the field of gender studies, if you want to call it that. Um, and uh, yeah, so he went through and he read all these uh, titles. He just read the titles of these different studies. And in some of them, you'd be amazed. Like, uh, let's, let's give you some examples here. Why not? 
let's see. So you have a list of a bunch of people that we're presenting. And let's get down to some of the funner ones. So these are supposed to be peer-reviewed academic studies. And the reason why uh, us in academia have issue with this is because it's, it's degrading what peer review is meant to be. It's supposed to be the gold standard, as I've said. And what they've done, as an example in this conference, is they've developed their own peer-reviewed source, which essentially is an echo chamber for their own ideology um, at the academic level and push out these just tons of studies that, <laughs> for lack of a better word, are just flawed and useless. Um, and I'll give you some demonstrations here in a little bit, but first I wanted to read some titles. And then what we're going to do is we're going to dive into some of the abstracts Maybe some of these, but some of the others, at least in my field, that are just, they're disturbing. I don't know how else to put it. Either why would you waste your time on this or what point are you trying to prove? That's usually what I read out of these. And the fact that they've been, they've been published in peer review is disturbing, to say the least. So to give you uh, some examples... Uh, there's one just called fat studies. Okay. That's, that's fun. Let's, uh, see. Where does this stuff start? This thing is like a, how big is it? Oh, it's 265 pages. So if we scroll down, exhibitors, paper title. Town hall discussion. All right. Okay, so it's breaking down the times. Animation. Ooh. Yeah. Um, let, let me ask you this. Just, let's just read the... Uh, Film screenings. Oh, fun. So let's let's start with the uh, one section of their symposium where they have some blackets out of time here. Uh, film screenings for animation. There's two for that. The Incredibles. There's a film screening for The Incredibles. Uh, and then a film screening for the movie Heavy Metal, where they talk how sexist heavy metal is, I'm sure. Um, Beauty and the Beast in French. Uh, fairy Tales, Beauty and the Beast, same thing. Uh, looks like they did it uh, in English and in French. And then, uh, then they break out and go to Gay, Lesbian, and Queer Studies, Animating Animus, Dandy Sissies, and Drag Divas as Archetypes in Disney Villainy. Um, all right. Let's uh, let's get to the funner ones, shall we? As soon as I can find them. I, I scrolled through this thing a couple times and just read some of the stuff that's in here and just I, I wanted to hit myself in the head with the ballpoint hammer. It was amazing that anybody would just... Yeah. I, I don't understand why some of these people seem to think that this is okay to turn to full-blown 
communist thought and publish this crap. Yeah. Okay, so here we go. Academics and collegiate culture. Academics and collegiate culture one, bullying and treatment of the other in academia. Next one, sex, comics, parents, and college campuses. Comics for safe space. Oh, comics for safe campuses. Excuse me. Um, comics for safe campuses. I thought you guys were going there to learn not to read comic books. Um, I'm glad that I didn't go to a traditional college because why would I waste my time at something like that? Holy insano. Um Fidelity anxieties, transmedia approaches to adaptation, defining and redefining adaptation theory one. Really? Uh, there's a bunch of adaptive stuff. That's so fun. Analyzing teen cinema. Yeah. Okay. Exploring female adolescence, psychology and pop culture. Now that one would be kind of interesting, I guess, but... Judging from the rest of the symposium, I would go no. Sociopolitics and racial terror roundtables. Space, place, and agency, and language. Play, pain, and the blues of African dysphoria. Uh, okay. Cultural embodiment and aesthetics of identity. Blackish stereotypes in mass media. Black capitalism. So how can a system such as capitalism, which is centered around money, uh, be black? That'd be a great question. Health equity and civic agency. Right. Violence returning, the visual politics and reenactment. Um, visuals are not violent. Somebody really needs to teach them the difference between violence and nonviolence. Um it's getting to the point where um, words are violence, apparently. Um, and those that try to say that, I, I call me cynical and maybe actually a little bit violent. But anybody that says that to me, I just want to punch them and say, now you know what violence is. Uh, how about I just give you some word salad so you feel stupid while you're at it? It just, it just bothers me to no end. They don't know what violence is and try to paint things as violence is just... It's demeaning for those that have gone through a bullying experience, one or more, as I have. I, uh, for example, I was uh, in junior high. I was almost stabbed, and uh, the guy that tried to stab me, I I beat the living crap out of him. And for those to say that words are violence um, diminishes the actual violence that exists. Like stabbing people is violence. Calling somebody stupid is not violence. It's demeaning. It's insulting. That's usually the intent behind such things. But it, it's not violence. I wish they'd get it through their goddamn heads that that's not what it is. So uh, what I'll do is on my Twitter feed, um, actually on Gad Sad's feed, I'll just link it to his videos that were just really, really good. Um, cause he went through here and just kind of picked out the really, really juicy ones that were just like, what the hell are they talking about? Um, 
such as uh, consent counts. It's never just black and white. Do's and don'ts of writing BDSM fiction. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's some really good ones in here that you're just, you, you really, uh, yeah. For uh, for those that are curious, uh, what you should search is the Pop Culture Association, American Culture Association National Conference. This is a conference that went on March of this year in Sheridan, Seattle, Washington, and Sheridan Hotel. Um, Wiley, which is a pretty big publisher, was hosting this. And just the the special cognitive distance that you need to to listen to this stuff is just it's flabbergasting i don't understand why somebody would believe in any of this crap but cults do what cults do so uh, moving on i want to get into uh some of the abstracts let me uh take a moment i i, I was upstairs playing with my son so i'm a little bit unprepared um, I came down here 15 minutes early, but apparently the um, platform I used, they decided to start the timer early, and it was going to just disconnect. Um, so give me one moment here. I'm pulling up my library. I had some things bookmarked in, in this that just um, disturbed me. Uh, drop here. And... What I'll do is I'll, I'll grab uh, one of these from the symposium here. This should be fun. Let me find a really just messed up one here. Topic area. Ew. Gender transgressions and transgressors. Yeah. TV and mental illness. What? Once you go psych, you get lost in psych. Representations of mental health issues in female prison dramas. What? Uh, I'm guessing what they co covered was the orange is the new black. That's the only thing that makes sense in that context. Uh, let's see... Vampire on the couch, the pornographic vampire. Wow, that that's important to study considering it's a fictional character. It's going to really um, develop us as a society studying vampires. Okay, so one of the things I did this week while while researching for this one is I just did a blanket search to see how far this this has developed. And I, I did a such, uh, such, excuse me. I did a search for uh, gender studies journals, and let me see if I can find it again. Unfortunately, I'm not on my regular machine either, so this doesn't help. 
Uh, all right, I'll just search it again, I guess. I'm completely out of sorts in this podcast. It's absolutely horrible. All right. So this is from Women's and Gender Studies section. This is the core list of journals for women and gender studies. And... Actually, uh, give me one second here. I'm going to go look this up. I'm going to go grab my other laptop real quick. That might speed this up. I'm sorry about this podcast. This is really just unprofessional, but give me one second. Do you ever have one of those days where you just want to hit the do-over button and kind of just start over? Yeah, I'm having one of those days. It's It's been like this all day today. Completely out of sorts and just uh, erratic, to say the least. Okay, so uh, if you search up the libr.org is the site, and it lists basically a bunch of journal uh, journals, I should say. Um, and some of these I've actually read pieces out of before, um, which are, they're okay, but uh, some of them I've read and I just had to take a step back because um, for one example, uh, there was one I was reading on a research topic I was reading about uh, regarding gender quotas in laws that have effectively demanded leadership uh, to be 50-50 split, essentially, diverse diversity by gender, uh, regardless of qualifications. And they did a poll on six different studies, two of them which didn't have gender law uh, regarding the the split and they they had one passed like that year and all of these city all of these countries uh, had a net loss with the firms that have enacted the law to just split the genders because what ended up happening is they hire a bunch of women that were unqualified not to say that women can't be qualified for those positions it just so happened that they had no talent stream in that area so uh, they just kind of promoted people so that they comply with the law. And um, the firms uh, had a negative effect, except for firms in Italy. Now, Italy had a positive correlation or a positive effect, and they actually did it voluntarily, and they didn't have any laws in place particularly. Um, 
what's great about this study is I was reading through and I was like, huh, that's pretty interesting. So there's a negative effect. Um, is it because they were hiring people that weren't qualified? What, what was behind that? And they said nothing about that. So I, I read further and they said, well, these other places failed because of bigotry. I'm like, no. Why? Why would it be bigotry if they complied with the law, hired more women, and then had negative results for doing so because they hate women? Out of five out of six countries? Countries, mind you, not firms, but countries. I was just like, and this qualifies as research, and this came out of one of those gender studies um, journals. So what you will see if you look on this is there's, there's a list of about 30 or so uh, journals um, that are gender-focused. Um, feminist Studies, Feminist Review, Feminist Periodicals, Feminist Collection, Feminist Theory, these are all journals who claim um, peer review. Uh, Feminist theory in particular, we'll just go with this one for now. Uh, it's an interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary journal launched in the year 2000. A forum, a critical analysis and constructive debate within feminism. In other words, just having within, feminim, within feminism there uh, makes it an echo chamber. So outside of feminism, nothing is true. Inside of feminism, that's all we care about. Um, and I, I seriously doubt they have non-feminists on their review board for their peer review, um, considering they're dedicated to feminist theory and promotion of the feminist theory. Why would you bother having somebody that's not a feminist, maybe a Mananist or MGTOW or uh, men's rights activist, MRA? Uh, are they a part of your peer review process? If not, then you're an echo chamber. And what I've noticed in this is um, the gender studies um, have removed themselves from the rigor of peer review. And literally have created echo chambers to which they uh, basically just talk to themselves. It's like a little bubble where they feed on each other and put forth peer-reviewed research, they call it. And this peer review is by their peers and their peers are other feminists. And those other feminists agree with their opinions because it's cult mentality. It's an ideological leadership thing. It's kind of like if, if you're an atheist, like I am, and you look at the studies that have been done in religious studies, which I've also looked at, um, and you see the same kind of behaviors. For example, look at intelligent design and creationism. Actually the same thing. The difference is, is one, creationists don't necessarily borrow from anything that's been discovered scientific because they believe the scientific fact is flawed because it is not from a biblical perspective. Intelligent design does not care particularly for Christians. It can be anybody 
And what they propose is that uh, there is an irreducible complexity to life and anything that goes to missing will automatically just not fail and not work right. Um, will cease to be, for example. Um, and that's proven wrong throughout, categorically throughout all of life. Um, for example, Down syndrome children are one chromosome short, I believe. I think it's short. And yet they're functioning humans they live they think they they may be a little bit slower than everybody else but if if their theory held true that one chromosome missing would be not life they would not exist they would be dead they would not be able to function to live um that's clearly not true they function and live just fine from every aspect that i've ever seen i used to do um I used to be a TA in the special needs class when I was in high school and junior high. And uh, I worked with these, these guys and girls quite often, actually. And not once is there a indication that they could not function in normal society. They might not be able to be a rocket scientist, right? Uh, but they can do just about anything else. You have to supervise them just a little bit more, but that's, that's not a big deal just takes a little bit more patience and a lot of, not a whole lot of people have that type of patience, but still their, their intelligence design um, promotion is not valid because evidence says otherwise, but that it still exists. They still press it forward. They still think that it's fine to argue it uh, in Twitter. In fact, just recently I'm arguing with somebody that wants to talk that, at the quantum level, nothing makes sense. And that's where God is or something like that. And that's where he's working his magic. And we don't understand it because God to which I reply is every gap in knowledge, God then. And in the same field, the, the parts where we're just barely scratching the surface of human psychology of development of our own evolution. I mean, it's just a 150 year old theory. It's not that old. And there's so much more we can discover about it. And it just barely, I mean, barely got applied to psychology of all things. And people seem to think that that's just, that's just okay to, to do a questionable theory that's an alternative because they don't like it. They don't like the results. So what do they do? They make something up and then work backwards. And from what I've seen in academic pursuits, is feminism has done just that. Now, in my previous podcast, I covered a article called. Um, uh, actually, let me pull it back up. It was a. Uh, let's see. Why do people join cults? I got so many uh, <laughs> links in my in my uh, collection that it's it's kind of ridiculous it's called evolutionary psychology strikes back and in this article they're talking about uh feminists did not like the evolutionary psychologist because the evolutionary psychologist said well men um based on their sexual behavior at a base level can have more kids than women women have to raise children at nine months um, they can only get pregnant once a month so it made more sense that men would want to sleep with more women that's just the facts or something like that. Um, 
yes and no, um, our society has changed to a degree where actually I think it's more than just a degree. Uh, what you see is long lasting relationships because child rearing takes several years for us and not just quickly. They're self-sufficient within like two months or three months, like some other animals are. Right. And so there's a degree of that. And then there's a degree of social, um, manipulation on that too, where, uh, men may want to look for multiple partners for some reason. Um, most women will get jealous over this guys fully admit that they look but usually don't touch um sometimes they do and that's when you hear uh judge judy <laughs> rip a new one to some very special idiots that decide to make a mockery of the what we have currently in our systems as far as you know marriage and long-lasting relationships go and whatnot so um Basically, it's considered a lower cognitive function. The the drive, the urge to breed is very barbaric. It's it's a lower function of our, our thinking mind. And in evolutionary psychology, it makes sense because when we weren't uh, forward-thinking mammals and very smart, um, self-preservation and preservation of the species is the only two things we care about. And um, every species on this planet, and I do mean every single species, plant, fish, reptile, you name it, they focus on uh, replication, on sex, rep reproduction. Their, their purpose in some things like is just to, per, uh, to uh, attract the next mate. In some cases, in some animals, they... Uh, mate with the same person for life. Uh, like the angular fish, for example, the females are the ones that are the big brutish, crazy looking things. The males actually attach to the female. And when they're ready to have a, uh, lay eggs or whatever, that male's there for life. They become a part of, they become a symbiotic relationship. Basically they become one entity. It's kind of creepy um, to watch because that fish is just a nightmare to begin with. But um the male actually attaches to the female's circulatory system. And then when they're ready to mate, she pumps blood to them like no, nobody's business and out comes the babies. In uh, closer animal species, the, the gorillas and whatnot, they maintain a, uh, a pod, but not necessarily mate with the same one. The, the dominant male is the one that keeps them around. And so we have this in, in our species as well, because we're similar in nature, but not the same. And those differences are what matters, I think, the most, which makes us human. But we still do have this animalical um, drive, this propensity, this existence that we have to tackle with. And so men, unfortunately, are think with the other brain, as it's called. Um, and in this one, they decided that this is not good enough. And women didn't, or feminists in particular, did not like this theory. And they made their own up. And then they called it the social gender, the social, socialization of gender, essentially. Um, claiming that gender in itself is a social construct and not a biological one. Um, 
and they point specifically to trans transgender people as a psychological condition that makes it evident that uh, gender is psychological and not physical. And they point to other, um, like hermaphrodites, for example, who have uh, a genetic-based, um, how can I put it, um, disfigurement. It's not really, it's a birth defect, essentially, where they're both born with both genitalia or missing or part of one and part of the other, um, which can happen in any species, right? But they point to these and say, look, gender is fluid, but they're pointing to 1% of the entire 6 billion population to try and claim this theory and ignoring the 99% of this population, uh, which to me is intellectually dishonest. But, you know, if, even if we grant them this idea that gender is fluid, um, based on this theory, what they have done is they've put together journals that perpetuate this theory regardless of it actually being true. And what happens is, is they, they don't stop there. It's not just psychology and genetics that they're arguing with already. They have created this foundation where gender is fluid, sucks to be you, we're right, you're wrong. And from there, well, how does gender fluidity um, influence the rest of our behaviors and lives? And in comes these journals that just try to justify their position without any real effort because they claim peer review, but they're reviewed by the members of their in-group think mentality. They're not peer reviewed at that point. They're propaganda pieces. Um, to give you an idea, I'm, I'm going to, I did a search in my field, gender and leadership. I'm just going to check the box for um, peer reviewed only uh, academic journals. Now to give you an idea, um, I'm going 1944 to 2017, so let me change that to the last 10 years, 2007. And academic journals only. Now, these are articles that I'm searching, right? And I did just gender and leadership. Those are my keywords. In the last 10 years, scholarly peer-reviewed journals academic journals only supposedly and what i got was 3856 papers published now when i had it to 1944 there was 5000 so in the last 10 years since they propagated this feminist theory as it spawned in academia there's been over 3000 papers published Prior to that, 2,000 papers from 1944 to today. So we're talking like two third, or no, sorry, three fifths of the papers that were published from 1944 were done in the last 10 years. 
if that doesn't raise any red flags about trying to make propaganda in academia, I don't know what is. But let's let's continue because I have um, a bunch of these up. I'm just going to read the titles and I'm going to go down until I see one of the journals that is in the list of our journal um, list of journals for women's and gender studies because some of these might actually be legitimate and so i'm just going to skip them because they they probably have something good in there uh i can read you a couple of the abstracts just to give you an idea of why i'm going to skip them so let's start at the top right the first one right might as well mind the gap gender differences in global leadership self-efficacies this is from the academy of management perspectives published actually last year Oh, no, this year. Sorry, we're not in 2017 yet. <laughs> February this year. Abstract. The current literature suggests that to succeed in global roles, one needs a global mindset. And in this study, we examine gender differences in global leadership self-efficacies in a random sample of 1,187 managers from 74 countries. Using the global mindset inventory, we found that women demonstrate stronger global leadership profiles with regards to passion for diversity, intercultural empathy, and diplomacy. Conversely, men tend to show strong global leadership self-efficacies regarding global business savvy, cosmopolitan outlook, and interpersonal impact. So what this says, essentially, we they discuss the implications for their findings uh, for shared leadership in global contexts. And shared leadership is the idea that you get five people in the room, they're all kind of knowledge experts. They lead themselves to get their stuff done, but there's a one leader that kind of brings them together once a week or something like that to kind of keep them focused on the task or project at hand. That's all the leadership does. And then they delegate, they trust the rest of their team to do whatever the hell they need to do to get stuff done. But this study in particular says that um, women have a different approach to global leadership than men. That's pretty much what it says right in what they're stating, that women lean toward passion for diversity. They, they like diverse minds, diverse culture, diverse mindset. They like, uh, they have an intercultural empathy, meaning that they, they empathize with the different cultures and probably get along better with other people from different cultures since this is a global focus. You know, you're going to deal with six or seven people. They might be in different countries around the world. And then the last one, uh, diplomacy means they, they are really good at negotiating things to get them done for the organization that they're working for. Men on the flip side um, are really good with the business acumen. They're more analytical, basically. Cosmopolitan outlook means that they got a grandioso themed idea and then they just disseminate it and let other people figure it out. Probably not that great at translating that outlook or that idea to the multiple cultures because people speak differently and have different communications in different countries. So there might be some issues there. I'm just assuming, of course, because I have not read the study, but I'm just reading you um, what they've said. And then interpersonal impact. What they're looking at is not necessarily the feelings of the individual, they more care about the relationship as it pertains to the results or the outcome of the engagement. What that means in layman's terms is they study enough 
about the culture to be able to treat you appropriately so that they can get the job done. That's it. So these type of studies, I'm just going to skip over. Now, you know, I have 4,000 to read um, in this. And just to give you a, a small idea, um, I'll, I'll tell you what number I stop at, I guess, because it's, uh, it's very bizarre. So here's one. My, I, I didn't have to go very far. Number seven. This is from People and Strategy. It's not on the list, but it was published this year. Uh, the article offers authors insights on lack of women's leadership, women leaders in the workplace. Topics discussed include double standard that exists concerning the cap capacity of women to be effective leaders, the gender beliefs and biases which hinders women to take on leadership positions, and differences between the leadership in men and women. Okay, so what this focuses on essentially is a double standard saying that women will not be effective leaders. Um, the science is pretty much determined that that is not the case. Um, there may be some of that bias in the older generation beyond Gen X. So we're talking baby boomers or older, uh, late career executives that are reaching retirement. Um, the old man's group, I guess you can call them. Um, they may have some biases in that area, but these are perceived biases from the women. I can guarantee you from the people that I've talked to in Fortune 500 companies that that's not the case. They don't think that women can't lead. It's the issue is finding someone that fits the leadership role with their experience and their knowledge that is both effective at communication as well as uh, delivering results for the business because business down to it is all about bottom line and not so much about people. And that's where women focus most is on the people aspect of it, which is why you see um, certain roles, predominantly women over men. Um, so I, I don't know that I'd actually believe that they're trying to say that there's a double standard um, without quantifying that, they just say that there is. Um, of course, I'm just reading the abstract, so I could just be pulling it out of my ass. It's perfectly possible. All right. Um, Journal of Education and Learning, Education and Practice, Authors, Leadership and Gender in Groups, an Experiment. We conduct a laboratory experiment to study gender differences in leadership. We strip the concept of leadership about down to its most basic elements. Question style evaluate for leadership styles adopted are made. Questions of styles and evaluations of a leader based on style of leadership adopted are made irrelevant. Our leaders is at our leader is an average player who is distinguished merely by occupying the leadership position. Legitimacy is conferred on the leader by special information possessed. Followers voluntarily chose whether or not to follow the better informed leader. The effectiveness of the leader is reduced to two simple factors. The leader is willing, the leader willing or not to voluntarily place him or herself in a vulnerable position to achieve an outcome beneficial to both the leader and his or her followers. Do followers trust their leaders? Um, that would actually be kind of a fun one to read. 
Female leaders show a hesitation to lead in mixed gender environments with gender signaling in circumstances where followers' refusal to follow can significantly hurt them. So that's that's kind of what you expect, actually, because our our evolutionary psychology suggests that women do seek more secure roles and environments. And so to go out of their culture or out of their comfort zone isn't inherent. It does happen though. Don't, don't get me wrong. That's, that's why there's so many out there that are just absolutely awesome, but they do stand out and for a good reason, but it, it it's pretty interesting that, that it would, the way to show exactly what evolutionary psychology suggests, right? Why can't other people do that? Let's see. I'm trying to find a really good one for you. Because a lot of these are actually pretty good. Ouch. Oh, here we go. Number 15. Journal of Psychology and Theology. So this is in religion. Already, we know this is going to be a bad idea. Aspiring to lead an investigation into interactions between self-esteem, patriarchal attitudes, gender, and Christian leadership. Now, to be perfectly clear, patriarchy does exist. I am not one of those people that are anti-feminist that will say the patriarchy is a bunch of bullshit. Because it does exist, but only in specific systems or specific organizations. What I mean by that is your run-of-the-mill organization, uh, Hobby Lobby, um, Walmart, you name it, you know, big companies or small companies, it doesn't matter. Patriarchy does not exist in those systems. Where it does exist still and pervasively to this day is religiously driven organizations and religiously driven countries. So Christian leadership right off the bat is a key to me to say that I already know where this is going. Self-esteem, uh, self-esteem has been linked to almost every aspect in people's lives, including their leadership aspirations. This study tests relationships between self-esteem, gender, leadership aspirations, examined a potential interaction and effect of patriarchal attitudes. Study have found that women report lower levels of self-esteem than men. That's good. And men and women attending Christian Bible colleges have reported differences in self-esteem compared to the general population, with male Christian Bible college students reporting the highest levels of self-esteem. Um, right. Because you're going for a Bible degree. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, try to skip through here. In addition to examining the interactions of self-esteem and leadership aspirations and patriarchal attitudes, although we found no differences in self-esteem between Christian men and women, our results supported importance of self-esteem in determining leadership aspirations. However, the nature of relationship between self-esteem and leadership aspirations was meaningful, meaningfully affected by patriarchal attitudes and its effect differed by gender. Yeah, and then it doesn't really, you know, that's all you get in the abstracts. So it's it's like a spoiler. Um, I'm willing to bet 
that women did not like the patriarchal system in general. Um, if you're Catholic, for example, you can never be a priest. And it was argued with uh, Stephen Fry and um, Christopher Hitchens on a debate once where they had a lady that was a former MP and a priest arguing with them. And that was a disaster to watch, but it was very fun because they ripped the Catholic Church apart. Um, but essentially, the, she was fine that she could never rise to the leadership levels of men because she is it's not her place as she put it it's not her role it's not her gender duty she is married to jesus and that is good enough to be a priest or a priestess or a nun rather is is the formal title for catholics um same too do you rarely see a female pastor on occasion, there's one of the holy rollers that's in the 500 that owns her own jet that's um, a female. She's one in a big boys club, and I'm pretty sure none of them take her seriously because men are dominating that, se- that sector because they follow the Bible, and the Bible pretty much says that women are subservient to men. Um, actually, it does say in there that women shouldn't speak. Unless it's to praise their man. It's, it's pretty messed up stuff. So there, and in Islam, and even in, to some extent in Judaism, not as bad as it used to be back in the olden days where women were basically slaves to men. Um, there are female rabbis now, which is really cool, but they won't be the head rabbi, probably. You never know. It might happen. The, uh, the Jewish people are the most secular of all the religious people, ironically, because they found out in the, it's in their best interest not to um, go against the will of the people and force their religion down on the people's throat. Really good idea. But uh, in Islam in particular, women are to be servants of men. That's why they can have four wives. That's why they can have sex slaves. That's why their uh, traditional clothing exists because men can't control their own libidos and, and sex drive. They have to cover up so that they aren't appealing to women or appealing to men. That's the whole reason they wear the hijab and the burqa and all that shit. It's because they cannot be appealing to men. So don't show your hair on your head. It might attract a male. Just look at the crap that's going on in Germany, for example. Uh, if you look on uh, tea and krauts, or kraut and tea, excuse me, said it backwards. Um, in the last few, he's pointed out a map of Germany that shows all of the uh, crime committed by the immigrants that are all Muslim. And the map is covered. It's ridiculously covered. And you're talking about uh, sexual assault of children, sexual assault of women, um, just recently, within the last month, they had an honor killing of a woman that refused um, something of a man. I can't remember what, but he basically set her on fire in the middle of the street because he could. And I doubt that guy's going to get punished. Um, he's he's a poor immigrant, right? So here's one of the scholar or scholarly articles. Another one. Uh, it's just further down, number 18. Gender and behavior is the name of the journal, Improving South African School Effectiveness Through Distributed Leadership, a Study of Gender. 
In addition, in addition, gender issues in education have become increasingly important factor worldwide. Yeah. So the Ministry of Education has decided to do something about it. Outcome of the study demonstrates that sharing leadership by collaborative decision making can significantly contribute to the improvement of school effectiveness because it supports effective distribution of leadership. Yes, that makes sense. Why have gender in there? That makes no sense. That is to suggest that they have to because women. Why would you study gender on studying something so benign as distributed uh, leadership decision-making? That's been the most effective method to date. Well, I'm about out of time. Um, I know I wanted to get to a few more of these studies. Uh, I had a couple that I pulled down, but I, I can't find them on my laptop for the life of me. Um, but I, I welcome you to check out the Association of Colleges and Research Libraries, Women and Gender Studies Subject Session. It's www.libr.org. That's Lima Icicle Bravo Roger. Dot org and uh, you can find the section there and list a whole bunch. Um, also check out Gadsad series and he'll <laughs> goes over the fun ones of that that symposium. The yeah, it's it's amazing how much peer reviewed has been violated. All right, so it said it was done. Gave me a 10-second warning. So this is my after show. Uh, I've started up a YouTube channel. Uh, so far, I, I did a SJW Challenge Accepted where I went over that uh, evolutionary psych strikes back and why I have issues with the whole feminist movement in academia to begin with. Sounds a hell of a lot like creationism. Um, I'm still learning this section though because I'm not very good at video editing and all that fun stuff um, I'm not an artist by any stretch of the man imagination I'm a musician but I'm an artist go figure right I can't draw to save my life uh, and I, I do have planned up a, a series I want to do where I take my cultural Marxist model that I'm going to hopefully publish in um, a peer-reviewed journal as much as that's worth anymore. Um, maybe I'll just post it to like Salon or some crap. I'll just send it to one of those guys and see if they like it. Um, where I'm going over the, the model itself and why I see it as a problem in academia. Um, the core of it, I call it cultural Marxism because they all are Marxist, uh, they all have Marxist tendencies. Where I differ from that is the points in a lot of the rhetoric and arguments seem to be just focused on uh, that's very Marxist view, that's very this, and it's very, very that. It's fe feminism is cancer, for example, just all that kind of fun stuff. It, it's if you're going to say feminism is cancer, then uh, Islam is cancer, Christianity is cancer, um, Judaism is cancer, and in some of the recent studies that I've read on religion in particular, it's not necessarily cancer. I mean, it does give people some benefits. It keeps them, uh, keeps them stable, for example. 
Um, some people had some severe emotional trauma or religious trauma, and what they did was they turned to Jesus, essentially, and it gave them um, a coping mechanism, if you will, for their issues. Well, feminism isn't like those religions. There's not something to believe in. There's something to belong to. And same with the cultural Marxist stems or branches from that. Um, what I include in those is social justice and the racial divide movements. Um, I have to now include the right-wing anarchist dumbasses, uh, white supremacists, and the Black Lives Matter movement is probably the most pervasive right now, but it used to be the Black Panthers and, and groups like that where all they care about is their skin color. And that somehow differentiates you from somebody else. And sure, if you're a superficial person, it would, because then all you would care about is what you see versus not what they are. So that's that's coming down the pike. I'm going to take a break for um, the holidays. Hopefully you all do too. It's uh, Christmas is around the corner. Uh, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, uh, I'll have you know that uh, Jeremiah 10 is a is a great little thing to throw up every once in a while, and especially if you have a religious family and they know you're an atheist, um, because it says specifically, do not go out there and cut down a pine tree and decorate it in gold and silver and put lights on it and erect it as a palm tree. So in, in other words, it's a sin, it's a heathenistic sin, because this is from the Old Testament, right? That uh, the, the Christmas tree is a heathen thing. So when an atheist stands up a tree like I do, and much of my family does, because I have atheist family, fortunately, I didn't grow up in a Christian household. Some people come over and give us crap. Like, you don't even believe in God. You don't believe in Jesus. Why do you have a tree? Well, did you know the tree originally came from Yule, which is actually from Odinism? Or it's a Celtic belief. It came from the Norse, came from up north, where it was meant to re uh, represent the winter solstice and so on and so forth. And of course, they've always heard this argument that the winter solstice is that and whatever. I always have to ask a Christian, though, do you have a Christmas tree in your house? And they ask, and if they say yes, you, you say, why? It's a Jesus and God hate those. No, they don't. It's very Christian to have a tree. Really? Jeremiah 10. And then the other argument, oh, it's the Old Testament. It don't count anymore. Really? Matthew 5.17. Is it 5.17? Or is it 7.15? Let me see. Matthew 5.17. Uh, yeah, that's the one. Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. Yeah. Of the prophets or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. For I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a single jot, not a single stroke of the pen will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Well, Jesus never came back. Nothing's done and accomplished yet. So therefore, the laws remain. And the fun thing about that is, is people don't know the difference between commandment and covenant. Covenants and agreement. Commandments and order. Commandments are laws. Covenants are arrangements or agreements. So this would be a covenant from Jesus. Um, saying that he won't abolish the law until everything's done. Well, I guess he died early, didn't finish what he was doing. So those laws still stand. <laughs> A 
Romans 3.31, do we then nullify the law by this faith? No, by no means. Instead, we uphold the law. So all those Christians opposing gay marriage laws are violating Jesus. That's fun stuff. Um, that's, that's it for me. Um, I'm going to conclude this with uh, a thank you. I have a very happy holidays. Uh, I saw a number of you dialed in. I didn't take calls today, unfortunately, but um, I do appreciate you calling in, listening to me. Uh, I, I will be building this YouTube channel a little bit further. I want to take all of my podcasts and put them up in there, um, put some memes and stuff to them, kind of make them visually appealing. Um, I have some GIF art being made for me because I'm a horrible artist. And then uh, I'm also going to be doing kind of little blurbs of this uh, since this podcast is like a, an hour long. The videos won't be that long. They'll be like 10, 15 minutes at most. I don't want to take up a whole bunch of time. I'm just going to hit the point and walk away. Um, but I hope you enjoyed this one. There's uh, There's one more. Uh, I'll give you one more uh, of these studies just for fun. Let's see if I can find it. I've been scrolling down these, and uh, I haven't found a really, really good one yet, unfortunately. Um, a lot of these journals are really good. So Journal of Small Business Management, for example, that's a good one. Journal of Business Ethics, that's a really good one. So... Knowledge combination, capacity, and innovation, the effects of gender diversity on top management teams in technology-based firms. Um, skipping to the end, our results indicate that gender diversity positively moderates the relationship between knowledge, combination, capability, and innovation performance. Implications for the field of practice discussed among them, ways to contribute more equal gender distribution to the benefits of gender diversity in top management positions. Um, okay, so what they're talking about is knowledge combination, capacity, and innovation performance. Okay. Um, ethics debate exists on the effect of gender diversity at top management teams on organizations. Study aims to contribute to debate by analyzing the effects of gender diversity of TMTs, top management teams. The relationship between knowledge combination capability and organizations innovative performance. So 205 small medium businesses. That's okay sample size. Uh, so positively moderates the relationship between knowledge combination capability and innovation performance. Moderates. Why? Why say moderates? I'm going to click on this one here. Okay. Well, I clicked on it, and it didn't open up. There we go. Jenny, Maria, and Matilda. That's who did this. Cool. So clearly they like gender. This is from 2014. Uh, let's see. Theoretical background hypotheses. Hypothesis one, the greater knowledge combination capability, the better the firm's innovation performance. What is the null hypothesis? What are they trying to reject? Okay, 
So it's written for journal. The positive relationship between knowledge, combination, capability, and innovation versus stronger at higher levels of gender diversity in the firm's uh, top management team. Um, so there's really no mention of the null. I would say that it's it's there, but they wrote it for an article rather than the actual like study, which makes sense. Um, analysis. Here we go. What the hell? Before before the analysis, we performed outlier analysis and data cleaning to eliminate the extreme values that could have a strong influence on the conclusions to be drawn from the data in question. So in other words, the out, uh, they scrubbed the data and didn't take it as they received it. Out of 205, a small sample size, it's okay, but it's kind of small. They, they scrubbed the data, impacted their results. What the hell? What, why would you do that? They used SPSS, fun for you. That program is a pain in the ass. Innovation mean, 4.87. Standard deviation of one. That's significant. If your P is supposed to be 0.05, which is right. For those that don't do statistics, I'm very sorry. Go do statistics. It's painful. So the results show that gender diversity has a statistically significant moderating effect on the relationships between knowledge combination capability and innovation performance, but no direct influence on innovation performance. So what that tells me is gender diversity does not have a direct influence on innovation performance. So you're going to innovate regardless of gender diversity. but it has a statistically moderating or statistically significant moderating effect. Um, how do they define moderating effect? What is that moderating effect? Uh, let's see. All of the results support H1 and H2 develop a more in-depth interpretation of results to be represented in interaction visually. Yeah, sure you did. So they had between a six, well, five five and a six five, high gender diversity, increased high knowledge combination capacity, and innovation performance slightly increased. But they're saying low gender diversity was relatively static, like it just barely moved. Um, that could suggest that you have a uh, more gender, uh, gender um, diverse team that um, it increased your, it, it can increase it. Is it not necessarily true? Because gender doesn't necessitate knowledge. You can be smart, knowledgeable, male or female. Your brain may think slightly different, um, but essentially, you're, you're smart either way, so I'm not sure what the point was. But that's the thing. Like, why why would you pre-scrub the data? 
That's the thing that bothers me the first, right off the bat. Um, why, why does gender have to be a factor? That's that doesn't really indicate in here that. Uh, so first off, they scrubbed the data, so it probably said that gender is a wash if they didn't scrub the data. <laughs> uh. Okay. Anyways, there's there's tons of studies out there. Like I said, uh, on this result list alone, I had. 3,856, and if I put it back to 1944, um, let me let me go back one more time. Oh, one more. This this search engine kind of sucks. I just got to tell you that it's kind of annoying. Actually, get rid of that. And the number jumps up to 5,732. So if you go 5,732, and we put our date back in of uh, 2007, the last 10 years, and we jump to 3,856. That's 1,876 journal, or... Um, 1,876 articles were produced prior to 2007. So if I take this down to 2007, oh, let me get rid of the publication data gate and 2000. Oh. That's interesting. So it gives me a little bit different number if I change the search results. 2,159 academic journals were produced. So that's like a 200 difference from my math. So 2,159, but there's 6,000 studies. So two-thirds of them existed after the period of 2007 to 2017. Um, to me, that's trying to prove a point of something I don't know it seems like a waste of time that's all I have it for today thank you for joining me um, I'm going to sign off and uh, hopefully you guys have a great holidays um, make sure to hug your family they're awesome well most of them I guess <laughs> depends on which family you got I guess thank you everybody again and uh, I will talk to you next time